Good afternoon, Covenant Hope Church. It's a joy to gather to worship the Lord together. If you were with us last week, you were here for the beginning. We started a new sermon series in the book of Proverbs. So let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 19. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. Maybe some of you will remember the name Bernie Madoff. If you don't, Bernie Madoff was a successful financier and an asset manager in the U.S. Stock Exchange. He founded his own brokerage firm, and he invited men and women and firms and institutions to invest in him in order to get rich. That was his job. He offered uh, high Uh, returns with very low risk. And in 2008, his company was the sixth largest market maker in the S&P 500. Now, if you don't know what that means, don't worry. That means that they were very successful. Uh, This is the, the, the index market that tracks the stock performance and of the 500 large companies in the U.S., and they were number six. And so Madoff was very successful. He hired friends and even family members to join him in his company, including his own sons. They were incredibly successful. They had figures rising to as high as $65 billion that they were managing and that they had. Madoff and his friends and his family were living large, luxurious lifestyles and inviting others to join them. And they guaranteed these these high returns on investments with almost no risk at all. They promised that people would see returns. Thousands of people jumped on board, of course, including a number of very famous celebrities and even some charities put some money in, invested. Now, the problem was, it sounds good so far, but the problem was that Madoff was a crook. His whole investment firm was one big fat Ponzi scheme. Now, a a Ponzi scheme means that the business was hollow, that it didn't actually produce anything. It didn't have any goods. And it was only sustained to this extreme extent, $65 billion, by more and more investors being persuaded to put their money into the company, although that money wasn't making anything. And so some of that money, as more and more people invested, they gave some returns to the earlier investors just to keep them happy. But what a Ponzi scheme is, in really simple terms, is robbing Peter to pay Paul. Sin is like a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's hollow. It's empty. Sin boasts great things, it promises life, it promises joy and satisfaction, but in the end, it implodes. Sin might seem delightful, but its end is death. And that's the lesson that's at the heart of the passage that we're going to consider today. So will will you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1 if you're not already there? And if you don't have a Bible of your own, I really want to encourage you to just raise your hand and one of the ushers will run you a free Bible that we'd love for you to take away from this service. If you don't have one, it's important to have a Bible with you as we look at God's Word together. So we're going to be looking 
at Proverbs chapter 1. Let me just give a refresh from last week. We saw in Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, the essence of the book. It was the introduction. And it taught us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We saw that we must fear the Lord to become wise. But these first seven verses, they're just a mini introduction, and there's actually a mega introduction to the book of Proverbs as well. I'm not sure if you are familiar with the book of Proverbs, but the first nine chapters actually form something of an introduction. Nine chapters of introduction. They're a series of poems, one of which we'll look at today, and they're in praise of wisdom. Most of these poems are uh, delivered from parents to their children, and in particular, a father to his son. But these poems and these teachings apply to all of our discipleship to Christ. So it's important for us to consider that. Now, it's interesting, these poems, they serve as an introduction to the book. Nine chapters of introduction, that's kind of interesting, huh? That's a long introduction. We have to get through nine chapters before we actually get to the Proverbs of Solomon, which begin in chapter 10. But even this structure itself is instructive to us. It shows us that learning wisdom doesn't come naturally to us. We need repeated persuasion to embrace wisdom. We need nine chapters of persuasion before we're ready to learn from the Proverbs themselves. And so let's consider this first poem of persuasion, this first lesson that the father has for his son in verses 8 to 19. Follow along as I read them. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's go to the Lord and ask for His help as we consider this word. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Help us as we study your word today. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are obedient. In Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen. 
for the most part, each of us is in each of these poems that we're that we're going to consider over the next several months is introduced by a call to a son to listen up. And so we'll see that repeated. We see that here in verses 8 and 9. For, um, it begins with a call for a son to listen up, followed by motivation for listening to the father's instruction. We see that here in verses 8 and 9. So verse 8 gives us the call to listen up. It says, it says hear and do not forsake. Don't turn away from the instruction. Here God is now speaking to us through the mouth of a father advising his son. And it's not just Solomon speaking to his son, though that is, it's, these are from the Proverbs of Solomon, but it's in fact instructive and modeling to all the parents in Israel. He's modeling for every father in Israel how to instruct and train their children in the fear of the Lord that we saw in verse 7. But ultimately, it's God speaking to all of us as a heavenly Father, those of us who are His sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, notice here in these verses, the Father's care and His love, my Son. And He doesn't mention only Himself, He he mentions the teamwork, that listen to your mother as well. And so, both the Father and the mother are training, they're instructing, they're giving Torah to their children. That's God's Word. And that's why Brian, I don't know if you remember this from last week, when Brian prayed the pastoral prayer, he prayed for mums. And he prayed that they have one of the most important jobs in the whole world, training and instructing their children. That's why we want to commit both fathers and mothers and their role in parenting to the Lord regularly and be praying for that. But this isn't, so this isn't a role that you can assign to just one of the parents. We see here both the father and the mother are involved in instructing the children. Both are essential. And so, parents, it's primarily your job to help your children to learn wisdom. It's not primarily the role of the pastors. It's not primarily the role of Covenant Hope Kids volunteers that are downstairs even now. It's not the youth leaders Though we are here to support you in your job of discipling your children, it's primarily your job. And it's certainly not the job of school teachers that are unbelievers usually, or their school friends to teach them. No, it's the responsibility of parents. We see that here in these first two verses. Now, there are many things that you can impart to your children, important things, skills and abilities and life lessons. But in all of them, you want to be primarily, primarily focusing on training your kids in wisdom. Remember, that is how to live under God and in relationship towards other people. Teach them simple lessons along the way of their lives from the truth of God's Word. And maybe even begin this week by teaching them the lesson of this passage, what you learned in this sermon. And then verse 9 Here we get the motivation for the son to listen. What motivates him? Look at verse 9. It says, For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Think for a moment about what motivates an Olympic athlete. What do they dream about? What spurs them on in their training 
month after month and year after year. It's receiving the victor's crown. It's receiving a graceful garland for their head, a wreath and a medal, and standing on the podium and being recognized for what they've accomplished, all the hard work that they've put in. And the same is true of wisdom, except there isn't only space on this podium for one person, but for all who heed wisdom. Everyone who follows wise instruction gets the winner's medal, gets a graceful garland, gets a pendant for their neck. Wisdom is worth it. Wisdom is winning at life. It's being successful under the Lord. It's attractive to all who are adorned by it. It's not just practical, but it's beautiful. And wisdom to all around can be evident, just like a crown of grace and a medal of honor on the neck. All can see wisdom when your life is marked by it. And so what's the first lesson that the father has for his son? What's the first instructions in wisdom that he's going to give? Well, we see that in the the remainder of the passage, verses 10 to 19. It's a warning. It's a warning. And here it is, if you boil it down into one sentence, here's the father's lesson. Stop. Sin is seductive, but it's suicidal. Stop. Sin is seductive, but it's suicidal. We see that sin is seductive in verses 10 to 14. Look there. The Father's warning begins with the welcoming words from sinners. It says, come with us, they say. The Father lives in the real world, right? And so the Father recognizes that there are sinners out there. And here, when He talks about the sinners, He's referring not just to everyone, because all of us are sinners, but Here, he's talking about those who are hardened and habitual sinners, who are characterized by their sin. In the scenario that he's presenting, these are professional sinners. They're like professional criminals, like a criminal gang, a a gang of robbers. And so, you could sum this first lesson up as, don't join a gang, son. The scenes presented in concrete terms, even the father plays out the conversation of these sinners, doesn't he? We see that in verses 11 through 14. He says, if they say. He's preparing the son for the real world, a real life situation. He's pretending that this might happen. Evil men love company. The father knows that. And so, in this instance, he's saying, you might get invited to join a group of sinners. He recognizes that the son will have temptations, and oftentimes they will be from people outside of himself. What a model this is for us in parenting and discipleship. We shouldn't wait till after the fact to warn our children about sin and the enticement of sin in the world. No, we should act proactively to prepare our children for the snares and temptations that are out there in the world to help them be on guard, to be ready when this might happen to them. The Father also recognizes that their invitation, it's enticing, He says. He says, if sinners entice you, and so He knows that it will be seductive. This invitation from sinners will be attractive. 
It will sound good to the son. But he says, don't consent. Don't accept this invitation, son. Don't be persuaded by them, son. Now, maybe you're thinking, I've never actually been invited to join a criminal gang. And maybe if I was, I probably wouldn't be tempted. If a gang of robbers were like, hey, Tobin, come join us. You might not think that was very attractive. Fair enough. But what we must be honest with ourselves about is that there are times, and we all know that feeling, when someone extends an invitation to something that we know is likely wrong or maybe just flat out wrong, but it's still hard to say no, right? We've all been there. Maybe we've tried to rationalize that we won't let ourselves get caught up with the the bad stuff that they're doing, but we really know that it's not going to be good. We see it all around us all of the time, and sometimes it tempts us too when we see sinners joining together, welcoming others in. It goes from the smallest and simplest things, like being invited to spend time with a group of friends that you know they always gossip about people behind their backs. Yeah, sure, it's, it's not physical violence, but it is destroying another person's reputation with our words. Or perhaps, maybe it's not even out there in the world, maybe it's online piling on with the rest of cancel culture on social media to to gain more followers or even to make ourselves feel better, morally superior. It goes from things as simple as that all the way along to Adolf Hitler's Germany, Nazi Germany. We must remember that not many took a stand against him, even when he was inciting violence against others even, sadly, among professing believers, there wasn't a huge resistance against Hitler. So, we must not think that we're above being tempted in this way. This temptation to go along with the crowd, even when they are evil, comes in various wrappings. It comes not just from criminal gangs. One commentary said, there are many legal, polite, persuasive, even religious ways of saying, come with us. Let us lie in wait for their blood. Perhaps the most obvious time that we feel this pull when someone invites us to do something that we know we shouldn't is when we were teenagers, right? Maybe some of you in the room are teenagers. You feel that peer pressure. We've got a a label for it. And the violent form of it is bullying, right? But that pull and that temptation, it doesn't stop when you graduate from high school. It may become slightly more sophisticated, not always, but sometimes, but it's there in university, and it's there in virtually every job that you'll ever have as well. They just call it office politics at that point, make it sound a little more smart or something. We seek to get a leg up by stepping on someone else in the office place. And you know what? The church is not immune to this. This happens even within the church. In fact, the New Testament, particularly in 1 Corinthians, it warns us against the dangers of these factions that split churches, 
And they only take one person to get the ball rolling, saying, hey, come join me. Let's lie and wait for the pastor's blood. Let's lie and wait for that member's blood. But have you ever wondered what's so attractive? What is it about this that draws us in? What gives peer pressure its power? Look what they offer. Look what they offer in verses 13 and 14. Well, even before that, in verses 11 and 12, we we see that the first thing that they offer is a sense of belonging. They say, come with us. Let's work together. We'll succeed together, they say. This invitation is to be part of a community working together. Now, of course, the work that they're doing is wicked. Waiting, in, in, uh, waiting for blood and ambushing and, and swallowing people up alive like Sheol or the pit, like the grave. But God has actually designed us for this very thing, to belong to a community. The first thing that the Bible describes as being not good, it's not sin, it's solitude. It's, uh, it's Adam, right? It was not good that man should be alone. We all have been built with a longing to belong. These sinners, even unintentionally, tap into that to lure others to come and join them in their evil. Friends, we must beware of the pull of belonging. But that's not all that they offer. They also promise prosperity. Look at verse 13. He says, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. These sinners offer immediate gain. Get-rich-quick schemes are often too good to be true and usually leave a trail of victims. Riches are bait on the end of the hook for many sinners' schemes. Like a Venus flytrap. Have you ever heard of one of those? The, the plants, that are, they're beautiful, and they have all these prongs, and they release enticing juices in the middle. And as soon as a bug lands on them, they slam shut, and they kill the animal. That's just what sin is like. It's just what sinners are like. They entice us with what looks good, but in the end, it's death. This temptation arises for, for this temptation for goods, for precious goods and plunder, that it rises out of a heart that is discontent, not being satisfied with what you, have, uh, what you already have and longing for more and more stuff. Paul, as we read earlier in our uh, service, actually warns Timothy, a pastor, about this very thing. Turn with me back to page six of your bulletin. We're just going to consider this, see how this echoes with the same kind of idea that Proverbs has. Paul is writing the same warning to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
That's incredible. He's warning about discontentment and the love for more stuff. And he says that this temptation has actually drawn people to leave the faith. This is a serious temptation. This is a serious warning for us. And so we must ask ourselves, are are you, am I content with what I have? Do you find yourself daydreaming about the next paycheck and what you're going to spend it on? Or longing and hoping for the next raise in your pay or the next promotion so you get up to the next pay grade? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it ends in ruin and destruction. So we must fight, brothers and sisters, for contentment. We must fight the lure of money by giving it away generously. That's one of the ways that we fight the temptation to love money is to give it away. Give it to a worthy cause. Give it to the church. Give it to our benevolence fund that we take up every month. Give it away regularly and sacrificially. Use it to be hospitable, to bless others rather than to accrue things for yourself. And thank God for all that He's given you, even if it's very little, rather than longing for all that He has not given you. And remember, none of these things that we own, none of these things that we possess, none of the clothes on your back, none of the mobile phone in your pocket or in your bag, none of those will go with you into eternity. They won't follow us into the next life. They won't even follow us beyond probably a couple years. And so these sinners, they offer belonging, they offer prosperity as part of their community, but they also offer fellowship. They offer fellowship or partnership in something, partnership with a purpose. We see that at the end of verse 14, throw in your lot with us, we'll all have one purse, they say. In a sense, they're offering part-time ownership in this criminal gang, in this criminal organization. This is something that we were actually made for, partnership, fellowship, but they've twisted it to evil purposes. This is, in fact, what we see here, what the Father is warning against, is a counterfeit community. It's a fake of what God has truly intended. It's a fake of the family of faith. Each of these promises touches on something that's inherent in man, but has been distorted. It's been bent and twisted in ways it wasn't intended by Satan himself. It's a dark imitation of what God's true community should be, of what the church should be. The church should be where we call people to come and to join the family of Christ. Even as uh, Pastor Nissen prayed earlier, where we evangelize. These, are, these sinners are doing something like evangelism. They're inviting other people to come and participate in what they're doing. That's what we're doing. The church should be calling people to come and participate in salvation, in bringing glory to God, and enjoying not just not earthly riches, but unimaginable riches. Not physical ones, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. And we have an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And we have the Lord Himself. That's what the church community is. In the church, we're called to be full participants, to be partners together in what Christ has called us to do, helping one another follow Jesus and inviting others to do it with us. And in doing this, God brings glory to Himself. That's His purpose for the church, is for us to help one another and invite others to follow Jesus so that Christ would be glorified. The church should be a display of God's glory on earth. The church isn't simply an event that you go to on Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning. No, the church is a kingdom that we are citizens of. It's a team that we're players on, not just fans and observers. A family whom we love and we serve alongside. For many of us, that has not been the way that we've experienced church. Maybe it's a new concept for you, but brothers and sisters and members of Covenant Hope Church, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what the true community, that this is just an imitation of, is meant to be. To be a Christian is to be in real, wholehearted fellowship with other brothers and sisters in a local church. And so we need a vision of what it means to be a church in order to do what God has called us to be. That's why we invite people to join with us in membership. It's why we encourage you to be involved in one another's lives outside of these uh, these walls. It's why we invite you to come a bit early so you can greet one another before the service and to stick around after the service to greet one another. It's why we invite you to come and join us for the prayer time later today so that we can hear updates from brothers and sisters in the church, so that we can be partners together, that we can share together in our lives. We're a family, not a meeting. The church should be attractive too. It should be somewhat enticing to those around us in the world. Even if they disagree with us, even if they think that the things that we believe are foolishness, they should at least see our lives and think, man, They might believe in some crazy fairy tale about the Son of God dying and rising again, but they sure know how to live together. They sure know how to love one another, and that should be enticing to them. And so we've seen here how even sinners can have an enticing counterfeit community. And we can see that the Father's wisdom is to stop. Don't consent. Don't agree to go along with them. Don't partner with them. And so, friends, we have to confess to ourselves and even to one another that sin is often enticing. It's often luring us in. But we must be committed together to not give in to sin's temptations, to not give in to those invitations. We must be prepared to resist by recognizing that sin has false promises and by remembering God's great promises of lasting joy and satisfaction, like those that the Father promised up in verse 9, a graceful garland and a pendant for our neck. Because sin really is seductive. We have to be on guard. We have to fight the good fight of faith. Sin is taps into our deepest desires, even 
God-given ones, but distorts them and it destroys us. Or rather, it causes us to destroy ourselves. And that's our second point. Sin is suicidal. We see that in verses 15 to 19. Sin is suicidal. Verse 15 repeats the address to the son with further commands. My son. He says, don't go with them. Stop your feet. Don't go their way. Don't go down their path. Hold back your foot. It only ends in destruction. You know, it reminds me, Hannah and I go out uh, for walks along the canal often during the week after, after work. And one of the repeated refrains that we say to Charlotte is stop. Because they've just introduced a new bike lane that goes alongside the walking path on the canal. And Charlotte wants to run into that path. She readily runs over there, and we have to constantly either be holding her hand or telling her stop because she wants to run right into that path, and we know that it's dangerous. Bikes come flying down at 100 kilometers an hour. Maybe not quite, but they're fast. And if she got hit, it would be horrible. It'd be devastating. And so that's what we see here in the Father saying, don't go that way. Don't go in that path. It's dangerous. It will lead to death and destruction. And he gives his son two reasons in verses 16 through 18 for avoiding the call of these sinners, to not go in their path. And we see that beginning with four. The father gives reasons because he knows, just like with kids, right, our children, they always ask, why? Why? It's not just enough to say, Charlotte, you can't be on that path. We have to give her reasons. And the first one that he mentions in verse 16 is that their ways are violent. Look there at verse 16. He says, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. These people are violent and destructive. This gang is violent. They're only out for themselves and they're willing to hurt others to get on top. And think about this. They say, come and join us. Throw in your lot with us. Let's go do violence to other people. It's almost comical because they've just promised the son to come join them in their criminality, but we already know they're not really trustworthy, right? They're violent. They also make it clear they're willing to hurt people to get what they want. Why would they not hurt the son if that would make their portion of the pot bigger? How can they be sure that they won't get themselves hurt? They promise security, but... Really, we know that violence surrounds them, and so they're likely to be injured. And so, when he says here that they run to evil, it means that they run to do evil, right? But it also means that they run into evil. They run into evil not just towards others, even for themselves. This is a clever, poetic, double meaning, which becomes even clearer when we see the Father's second reason for the warning. The second reason He gives is that their efforts are in vain. See that in verses 17 to 18. He says, in vain is a net spread in the sight of a bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. For something to be in vain it means that it's, it's good for nothing. It's pointless. 
Their plans are worthless. These men can't see that they're setting a trap for themselves. They're the ones who are going to fall in because sin blinds us to its dangers and it keeps us from seeing the harm that it will cause. That's why the father's warning the son before temptation comes. He's saying, see the trap and fly away. Oftentimes, the wisest move is to fly from temptation, is to flee, is to run away. It's to not put yourself in situations where you know you'll be persuaded by others to sin. Avoid groups whose whole purpose is to indulge in sin together. Take time, even this week. Consider who are the people that you spend time with regularly? Which of those groups leads you into sin? Which of those groups is influencing you in ways that you wish you weren't being influenced? Ask yourself, do you come away from time with those people feeling convicted, feeling kind of dirty, feeling gross? A question worth considering is one that one of the elders, when he popped into my office this week, shared with me was, am I influencing them or are they influencing me? And the warning is, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's what Paul tells the Corinthian church. But he's not just warning them because their ways are sinful, which they are. He's also saying it's vain because it's stupid. It's stupid. They're destined to fail. These sinners have less sense than even a bird. Because when a bird sees a trap being set, it flies away and it isn't caught in the trap. But these men, they set a trap for their own lives. They set an ambush for themselves. That's because it doesn't usually end well for people who commit themselves to a life of crime. Remember at the beginning of the sermon where I mentioned Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. In the end, his multi-billion dollar empire, it fell apart. The scheme collapsed. Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison for his crimes, and he died there. And thousands of his victims' lives were destroyed. But his victims were all those who had been lured by the promises of quick riches into his scheme. They didn't see that it was a trap. And they cast it in their lot with Bernie Madoff. Madoff couldn't keep up the act. In the end, he handed himself in and he admitted it was all just one big lie. Sadly, for many, they lost everything. They lost their life savings. They lost their homes. They lost retirement packages. And a number of them even took their own lives because of what had happened, including Madoff's own son. They thought that they were going to get rich quick, but in the end, they were robbed of their own lives. His scheme was seductive. But in the end, it was suicidal. 
just like sin. Now, at this point in the sermon, you might be thinking, okay, Mark, I get it. Don't join a criminal gang. Check. Don't join a Ponzi scheme. Check. But the father hasn't finished his lesson yet. In verse 19, he gives us the moral of his story. The father goes from this specific scenario of the gang of villains to a universal principle for every one of us in here. Here's the point. Look at verse 19. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. These realities, they aren't only true of the most extreme examples like a gang of criminals. No, it's true for anyone and everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. The heart of the, the matter is this desire for more and more at the expense of what is right. And that drives us. And the seed of this sin, it lies in the heart of every single one of us. We're foolish if we think that we're above being tempted to do what's wrong in order to gain something good for ourselves. In some instances, it's much more obvious, like robbery, bribes, and exploitation. But of course, it can be far more subtle too. How many of us shade the truth with our bosses to gain a good standing in the office? How many of us fail to be honest about our struggles with sin so that we look more righteous to our fellow church members? Fail to be honest about our struggles with sin. That's important. Not just struggles in general, but struggles with sin because we want others to think we're more righteous than we are. How often do we steal our employer's time, we get gain, by chatting or surfing the web when we should be working hard? How many of us are willing to abandon God-given responsibilities to our family, to our housemates, to our church, to gain greater prominence at work by working longer hours, or to gain the comfort of a little me time? I need some me time. It can be on both ends of the spectrum. It can be laziness, or it can be idolatry of work. And the list goes on and on. The ways that greedy for unjust gain can manifest itself in our lives. We have to take t careful attention of our lives and see, where is that at root in my heart? Because it steals the life of its possessors. And it has done since the very beginning in the garden. It was actually greed for unjust gain that led Adam and Eve astray. Satan whispered to them, come, join, take, eat, it's good, you'll gain, you'll gain insight, you'll become like God. Adam and Eve were driven by a desire for more than God had offered them. They were greedy for unjust gain, and in the end it led to their death. So friends, don't be fooled, sin is seductive, but it's suicidal. The path of sin always ends in death. Sin cuts us off from the Lord, the giver of life Himself. And as we read earlier, because of sin comes the wrath of God, eternal death. But God, in His great love, 
He sent His only Son to save sinners. He came to call sinners to say, come to me and find life, to turn from their path that led to destruction, to follow Him, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus invites us, and He invites us not to violence, but to perfect peace. Jesus invites us not to shed innocent blood, but to be cleansed by His innocent blood shed for us at the cross. He asks for nothing from us. We don't contribute anything to His purse. He offers us the riches of His own righteousness and grace, and He welcomes all to come to Him and to receive His indestructible life by the power of His resurrection from the grave. And He offers it all through the gift of His Holy Spirit that's imparted into our hearts. And then He leads us into fellowship with others, brothers and sisters, in the context of His body, the church. Friends, this is an invite that is extended to all and should not be ignored. It's the most amazing invitation you could possibly imagine, that you could ever conceive of, that God would invite us to freely enjoy fellowship with Him for all eternity and forgiveness of our sins, salvation from the judgment, the wrath that we deserve. And this invitation is offered to all. The only thing we must do is to come and to have it. It lies open before you today if you would only turn to trust and follow Jesus. But brothers and sisters, And this is crucial. This is so important. Our hope, our only hope of being able to resist the seduction of sin in our lives is through the power of the gospel. We don't earn ourselves a righteousness before God. We don't become wise by mustering up self-control within us. Remember, this is already addressed to someone who's in the family, to a son. We don't muster up this control within ourselves. It's a fruit of the Spirit that's given freely to us. Christ came to set us free, not just from the judgment of our sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. Christ gives us new hearts, which are able to say no to sin and yes to living wisely. Through faith in Christ, we can walk in the path of wisdom. We can resist the enticement of sin. This is especially important as we train our children. They must know that they can't be wise apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the foundation of the wisdom that this book lays out for us is not becoming a respectable person to become wise, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so here we've seen in this passage, two competing voices, the voice of the wise parents and the voice of the wicked sinners. The wise parents live in the fear of the Lord, and they promise glory to the Son, a crown of grace. But there are the seductive whispers of sin and sinners, whose path leads to sure and eternal death. Who will you listen to? Who will you follow? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you praise that in your mercy and love you sent Jesus to deliver sinners from the path of destruction, to invite us to come to your Son and become wise, to be given your Spirit of wisdom in our hearts. O oh Lord, give us eyes to see that sin is seductive, but that it's suicidal. Help us to fight the good fight of faith, to resist the enticement of sin, to commit ourselves to the path of righteousness with Christ. Lord, we pray that you would do these things for your glory in our lives, and we pray for them in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.